episode 19. How could you tell how much of it was lies? It might be true that the average human being was better off now than he had been before the revolution. The only evidence to the contrary was the mute protest in your own bones, the instinctive feeling that the conditions you lived in were intolerable and that at some other time they must have been different. It struck him that the truly characteristic thing about modern life was not its cruelty and insecurity, but simply its bareness, its dinginess, its listlessness. Life, if you looked about you, bore no resemblance, not only to the lies that streamed out of the telescreens, but even to the ideals that the party was trying to achieve. Great areas of it, even for a party member, were neutral and non-political. A matter of slogging through dreary jobs, fighting for a place on the tube, darning a worn-out sock, codging a saccharine tablet, saving a cigarette end. The ideal set up by the party was something huge, terrible and glittering, a world of steel and concrete, of monstrous machines and terrifying weapons, a nation of warriors and fanatics, marching forward in perfect unity, all thinking the same thoughts and shouting the same slogans, perpetually working, fighting, triumphing, persecuting, 300 million people, all with the same face. The reality was decaying, dingy cities where underfed people shuffled to and fro in leaky shoes, in patched up 19th century houses that smelt always of cabbage and bad lavatories. He seemed to see a vision of London, vast and ruinous, a city of a million dustbins, and mixed up with it was a picture of Mrs. Parsons, a woman with lined face and wispy hair, fiddling helplessly with a blocked waste pipe. He reached down and scratched his ankle again. Day and night, the telescreens bruised your ears with statistics proving that people today had more food, more clothes, better houses, better recreations, that they lived longer, worked shorter hours, were bigger, healthier, stronger, happier, more intelligent, better educated than the people of 50 years ago. Not a word of it could ever be proved or disproved. The party claimed, for example, that today, 40% of adult proles were literate. Before the revolution, it was said, the number had only been 15%. The party claimed that the infant mortality rate was now only 160 per 1,000, whereas before the revolution, it had been 300, and so it went on. It was like a single equation with two unknowns. It might very well be that literally every word in the history books, even the things that one accepted without question, was pure fantasy. For all he knew, there might never have been any such law as the Jus Primenoctis, 
or any such creature as a capitalist, or any such garment as a top hat. Everything faded into mist. The past was erased, the erasure was forgotten, the lie became truth. Just once in his life, he had possessed. After the event, that was what counted, concrete, unmistakable evidence of an act of falsification. He had held it between his fingers for as long as 30 seconds. In 1973, it must have been. At any rate, it was about the time that he and Catherine had parted. But the really relevant date was seven or eight years earlier. The story really began in the middle 60s, the period of the great purges in which the original leaders of the revolution were wiped out once and for all. By 1970, none of them was left except Big Brother himself. All the rest had by that time been exposed as traitors and counter-revolutionaries. Goldstein had fled and was hiding no one knew where. And of the others, a few had simply disappeared, while the majority had been executed after spectacular public trials at which they made confession of their crimes. Among the last survivors were three men named Jones, Aronson, and Rutherford. It must have been in 1965 that these three had been arrested. Now, as often happened, they had vanished for a year or more so that one did not know whether they were alive or dead, and then had suddenly been brought forth to incriminate themselves in the usual way. They had confessed to intelligence with the enemy, at that date, too, the enemy was Eurasia. Embezzlement of public funds, the murder of various trusted party members, intrigues against the leadership of Big Brother, which had started long before the revolution happened, and acts of sabotage causing the death of hundreds of thousands of people. After confessing to these things, they had been pardoned reinstated in the party and given posts which were in fact sinecures, but which sounded important. All three had written long abject articles in the Times, analyzing the reasons for their defection and promising to make amends. Sometime after their release, Winston had actually seen all three of them in the Chestnut Tree Cafe. He remembered the sort of terrified fascination with which he had watched them out of the corner of his eye. They were men far older than himself, relics of the ancient world, almost the last great figures left over from the heroic days of the party. The glamour of the underground struggle and the civil war still faintly clung to them. He had the feeling, though already at that time facts and dates were growing blurry, that he had known their names years earlier than he had known that of Big Brother. But also, they were outlaws, enemies, untouchables, doomed with absolute certainty to extinction within a year or two. No one who had once fallen into the hands of the thought police ever escaped in the end. They were corpses waiting to be sent back to the grave. There was no one at any of the tables nearest to them. 
It was not wise even to be seen in the neighborhood of such people. They were sitting in silence before glasses of gin flavored with cloves, which was the specialty of the cafe. Of the three, it was Rutherford whose appearance had most impressed Winston. Rutherford had once been a famous caricaturist whose brutal cartoons had helped to inflame popular opinion before and during the revolution. Even now, at long intervals, his cartoons were appearing in the Times. They were simply an imitation of his earlier manner and curiously lifeless and unconvincing. Always they were a rehashing of the ancient themes, slum tenements, starving children, street battles, capitalists in top hats. Even on the barricades, the capitalists still seemed to cling to their top hats, an endless, hopeless effort to get back into the past. He was a monstrous man with a mane of greasy gray hair, his face pouched and seamed with thick, sucking lips. At one time, he must have been immensely strong. Now his great body was sagging, sloping, bulging, falling away in every direction. He seemed to be breaking up before one's eyes like a mountain crumbling. It was the lonely hour of 15. Winston could not now remember how he had come to be in the cafe at such a time. The place was almost empty. A tinny music was trickling from the telescreens. The three men sat in their corner almost motionless, never speaking. Uncommanded, the waiter brought fresh glasses of gin. There was a chessboard on the table beside them with the pieces set out, but no game started. And then, for perhaps half a minute in all, something happened to the telescreens. The tune that they were playing changed, and the tone of the music changed too. There came into it, but it was something hard to describe. It was a peculiar, cracked, braying, jeering note. In his mind, Winston called it a yellow note. And then a voice from the telescreen was singing. Under the spreading chestnut tree, I sold you and you sold me. There lie they and here lie we, under the spreading chestnut tree. The three men never stirred. But when Winston glanced again at Rutherford's ruinous face, he saw that his eyes were full of tears. And for the first time, he noticed with a kind of inward shudder, and yet not knowing at what he shuddered, that both Aronson and Rutherford had broken noses. A little while later, all three were rearrested. It appeared that they had engaged in fresh conspiracies from the very moment of their release. At the second trial, they confessed to all their old crimes over again with a whole string of new ones. They were executed and their fate was recorded in the party histories, a warning to posterity.